for January 3rd, 2022. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 705. Have you ever tried to control a sheep? Hey, it's Overthinking It. Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, we continue to subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Another year, and we're still here. Because the overthinkers are like, well, we're like beloved characters from your childhood that get somehow resurrected every time we do a, uh, every time we do a podcast. I'm Matt Rather, uh, but I go by my hacker name, M. Rather. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm joined by my good friends, Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hey, Pete, what's your hacker name? Pete Fenzel. Got it. And uh, and also here with us is Mark Lee. Hey, Mark, what's your hacker name? Uh, Odious Leet Master. Oh, nice. You're, that seems kind of honest. Yeah, that's better. That's better. <laughs> um, better than mine, for sure. Uh, the... Um, yeah, my first online, my first AOL handle was I had just read Shirley or Joking Mr. Feynman, uh, the, the collection of stories, autobiographical stories about the physicist. And, um, they were, uh, and so I was really into, uh, Richard Feynman. And so I, I made my AOL screen name Feynman. But then everyone thought, like everyone in the, in the internet, the internet being the internet, even in its nascent stage then, everyone thought that I was trying to say that I was a fine man. And that, not that it was the, the, you know, name of the physicist whom I admired. <laughs> named I'm in fine, man. Jeez. <laughs> fine, man. Leave me alone. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm also 11. And the things you're saying to me in this AOL chat room oh. are inappropriate. Let's mm. move on from that. Pete, I understand you have watched the film that we're going to talk about this week. Yeah, I've been watching stuff this week, Matt. You want me to tell you what I watched? All kinds of things. Oh, many things. All right. Yeah, let's get the uh, let's get the uh, media journal of Pete Fenzel. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is that you might remember that 20 years ago there was a cultural phenomenon that changed the way a lot of us look at you know everything from f- how we think of media to fashion to culture. Right. All, everything being called in questions are the threats, right, that we feel in our lives and what needs to change and what needs to stay the same. Yes. And of course, as you know, this thing, this thing that happened 20 years ago that that really struck at the core of what we might describe or consider to be society, society has been brought back. Right. And in this new one, the big difference is that in the past. Oh, wait, wait. Conception- it's, it's that it's that big dies. Right. What? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't. I, I have neither a sex nor a city anymore. Uh, I, I am merely. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's that, right? It's the, that's what's different. Did you just spoil? Is that a spoiler? I don't know. Is that something people know? Yeah, yeah. It's it's. You're been, talking about the Tom Hanks remake of Big, right? Yeah, where absolutely. Big dies in the first. Yeah, it's it's movie. terrible. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks grows up and then is just hit by a garbage truck. It's pointless. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like a Shaggy Dog story. It really you can't yeah. have you can't do that to us. The whole us. rest it's, of it is just an FAO Schwartz salesman trying to get rid of a <laughs> of a lightly used piano that had a 
dead body on it at one point. Um, giant floor piano. I don't but know anyway. if, I get, if I get hate mail, I'll know that that I I did something bad and spoiled it for people. But it was so widely reported that I feel like it's it's out there in the world now. They even made a whole Peloton even made a, a whole ad and then yanked it when some when some uh, uh, bad bad stuff came to light. But the Peloton uh, is welcome to yank it whenever they want to yank it. That's their <laughs> business. That's not our business. Uh, but, so yeah. So sure. I suppose I would say that anyone who would care about that would not anyone who doesn't know probably doesn't know what that means. I would suspect, right? Uh-huh. Is maybe the case? I yeah, think it, maybe. that's a that's a uh, hashtag iykyk. Um, <laughs> you know, if ever there was one. Yes. So at any event, no, 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 not that, Matt. Come on, man. I'm I'm making a sort of glib comment, but I'm not making that glib comment. <laughs> what I wanted to say, I also love how I was like, Matt, I want to lead in with a joke. And it's like, interrupt you, right? As you're gearing up for the punchline. Um, but okay. All right, fine. I'll go. I'll try to get my, my mojo back. Excellent. Um, the old, the original, right, was all about the pressures to conform that society puts on people and how those things run askance and encounter to what people think of as what they want to do for themselves and how they've internalized the expectations of society to the extent that they don't feel free, right, to uh, to do the things that are necessary for them, right? Whereas the remake uh, or the new one, it's not necessarily a remake, but it's kind of a spiritual sequel, sort of a sequel, you know, the formula's all there, is really more about the gap people have between what they desire and what they need and then what they need and what they have and how the gap between desire and need gets in the way of the gap between uh, needing and having because you you seek out the things that you think that you should want rather than the things that are actually going to improve your life, right? So um, yes, I know we're talking about The Matrix this week, but I was talking about Queer Eye and the Queer Eye reboots, and that's what I was going to talk about before we got sidetracked by Six in the City. So I don't know if you guys feel like Queer Eye is a better version of The Matrix Resurrections. Have you been watching the new Queer Eye? Oh, I thought it was. I thought it, I thought it was going to be Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? <laughs> no, no, thought- no, no, no. I've been watching a lot of the Magic School Bus rides again, actually, <laughs> <laughs> which which stars Kate McKinnon, believe it or not, and Lily Tomlin comes back to reprise her old role as Miss Frizzle. But Kate McKinnon is the new Miss Frizzle, and they have scenes together where they pass the torch. You know, J.J. Abrams, Zachary Quinto, Leonard Nimoy style uh, in terms of driving the school bus and dumping the red matter into the Earth's core. Oh, I mean, uh, talking to sea creatures. Though, though, I would <laughs> say I would say that uh, Magic School Bus is less about preparing the red matter and more about preparing the gray matter. Boom, roasted. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Does, does the new Magic School song. Bus like, spend like like half of its runtime wringing its hands over its own existence? The first episode, the first first episode of the Magic School Bus Rides Again is a shot for shot pre-make of the first act of the Matrix Resurrections. It is (laughs) it is an entirely unnecessarily self perhaps it's necessary in this case. But you would you would hope that you might live in a world where it is not necessary for the Magic School Bus reboot to go into exhaustive detail about. The fact that it is not a reboot, but in fact a sequel, and here's the old Miss Frizzle, and here's the new Miss Frizzle, and they know each other, and they're family members with each other, and yes, she has different hair, but that's okay, because times have changed, and all the kids have come back, and they let us know it's only been X number of years, in this case, I think only one year, since all the events of the Magic School Bus took place, and the same kids are are back with, I guess there's some changes, but yes, if you want to really go into some hardcore world building for people who are probably right in thinking that it was necessary, 
either watch the first act of the Matrix Resurrections or watch the first episode of the Magic School Bus Rides again, um, which they also came out with a special uh, that uh, uh, over Christmas, probably just because they only made 10 episodes and people have been watching it. So they made another one. But uh, but yeah, you know, you can uh, you can you can surf on a sound wave. It's pretty great. You know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Pete, I really didn't mean to salt your game in the joke. I thought I was riding the wave. <laughs> no, I thought you were. I, I, thought it was, I, me off. I thought I was riding the wave with you. And I guess I I but the the new Queer Eye is a couple years old at this point. So it didn't I, oh, yeah. I didn't quite understand. I didn't quite understand what it was. But I think it is. I. Uh, I don't know. I feel like it does definitely, um, it does definitely sort of rhyme with the cultural reception of the, the original Matrix trilogy, which like, actually, if you, if you had said at the time that this, this is, that was a real, if you know, you know, because if, if you didn't know, uh, that, hey, this is an allegory about gender dysphoria, that, mm. you know, it's not, um, it's not immediately obvious given the cultural context of the, you know, the turn of the millennium, um, that, uh, that that's what was going on. But as we, we watched it, you know, and podcasted about it a couple of weeks ago and it, from the cultural vantage point that we have now, it is a lot more clear. It seems to me anyway, that, that it's a lot more clear what's going on, you know, largely because a lot of the rest of us have been brought along, um, in, in the culture. And I wonder, I mean, I wonder if the same, the same thing is true of Queer Eye for, for, uh, you know, for how it's for how it's received right like ra- rather than like oh you know this edgy thing is going to happen five gay men are going to descend on your house uh <laughs> you know like and uh, i remember i actually from an re- attack helicopter <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> and then you jump out and it falls sideways down the um and then carson cressley pops up and and i don't wins a uh I don't know, a medal for dressage or something like that. The, the, um, that like this was, I, I remember very well, uh, someone getting a spray tan in the original Queer Eye for the Straight Guy series. And, and actually the idea that, that a Queer Eye could only be for the straight guy, right? Is yes. something that, that we've given lie to over, over the past couple of decades. But I remember, I remember, you know, um, someone uh standing there getting a spray tan next to the fitness the fitness guru character on the original queer eye for the straight guy and and uh he's like i can't believe i'm standing here in my underwear next to a gay and it it was like even at the time i found it uncomfortable maybe because i i came out of theater and like this you know this would have been hurtful to a lot of people i cared about but the the um like the that kind of thing is i largely you know largely gone at least in the mainstream culture right like we're we're we thankfully don't tolerate that kind of thing on mainstream television uh anymore and now it's now it would be like oh oh i'm so you know my my pudgy middle-aged badly style poorly poorly accessorized self i w- would only that five fabulous 
stylists would descend on my house in an attack helicopter to to attack my slovenliness right and i, I don't know there's it, it's it's not even so much a change in what goes on on the show it's a change in the in the culture that surrounds the show and and it 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 shifts the meaning so too with the subject of of this podcast uh sex in the city um the, <laughs> No, it's, our ultimate it's game not. these days is just confounding the audience about what the podcast is even about before we get started, which is different than what it used to be, which was never having it be about the thing that we said it was about. It's going. This is going to be. We watch the Matrix Resurrections, people. We're going to talk about the Matrix Resurrections, but first we have to speculate about a Carnival reboot, right? <laughs> in which it's not weird that people are in the circus. It just takes place as an urban circus art studio where everything is normal, right? And like none of the people who were called freaks before are called freaks anymore, and. And uh, yeah, exactly. We're doing we're doing the Sopranos, except they're just Italian. There's nothing exotic. Or strange <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad it. that the that the remake of Oz goes a lot deeper into the politics of corrections unions, you know, and how they how they you know really <laughs> capture state governments and do that. <laughs> Uh, especially in California with our ballot initiative system. Um, so, so, uh, Pete, uh, let me, let me, uh, hypothesize. The California something. ballot initiative system is the real matrix. <laughs> I grew up, I grew up in it and I didn't even realize it was completely, <laughs> completely fakakta until I got, until I got to the East Coast yeah. and realized what, what it could be. Um, so Pete, uh, the, uh, the the matrix resurrections is a touching coming of age story uh about a young woman who captains a ship um yes. and and who has like purple hair purple blue somewhere in that in that you know vicinity uh hair and um how she comes to understand herself and her role in a society vis-a-vis an author- a senior authority figure who is very supportive of her but also you know uh holds her to account in ways that she finds uncomfortable and how she kind of finds her individuality and uh you know, finds her method of leadership and her own kind of way to make her way in the world and for her ship to make its way through the, the, you know, wasteland of post-apocalyptic earth. Um, so, uh, is is that thesis, uh, correct or incorrect with respect to Hawkeye? (laughs) (laughs) So, so I don't, we haven't really talked about Hawkeye and I'm not going to spoil anything in Hawkeye, but it's not a spoiler to say that the character of bugs in the matrix, uh, the matrix resurrections is very, very, very similar to the character of, was it Haley Steinfeld? in the Hawkeye show on Disney plus yeah, in that Kate she's Bishop a little girl, name. right? That's your name, right? Matt Mark. Uh, Kate Bishop was the character's name. Kate Bishop. Right. So Kate Bishop is a little girl who lives in New York when the Chitari attack during the Avengers and Hawkeye, she sees Hawkeye during the battle fight the, the robot aliens with just a bow and arrow. And I think Hawkeye inadvertently saves her life or not inadvertently. He does it purposely. He just doesn't know she's there. Um, but through Hawkeye's actions, her life is saved. And so she has an outsizedly huge, a bunch of admiration and respect for Hawkeye and does things like dedicate much of her young life to archery and martial arts and the combination they're in. Right. And, and then, and then of course it's like, Oh, she actually meets Hawkeye. And then that's where the show happens. So the matrix resurrections makes it seem like that's what the story is going to be Mm. because it introduces you at first to this character of bugs 
who and I'm going to go out on a limb and say she has blue hair, which is one of the more confusing choices in the movie that has a lot of very confusing choices. Uh, I mean, Mark, are you with me on this? That it's weird that Bugs has blue hair. I honestly had not given it um, much thought other than just like this is um, some aesthetic choice to, um, you know, just add a splash of color to the palette. Yeah, because there's a lot of they play. There's a lot of situations in this movie where there's two things that seem like they are in opposition to each other in order to make a point. And then they add a third thing that doesn't seem to be part of the pattern. And then that's the one that kind of goes off. And that's just because it's a bloated, confused kind of movie sometimes. Uh, But that doesn't mean that that there aren't still interesting things to talk about. And I mean, if you can't overthink a Matrix movie, I don't know what you can overthink. You got to turn in your overthinker card. Um, But the basic gist is that it's weird because she has blue hair because the characters who represent staying in the matrix are associated with blue and the characters who are associated with leaving the matrix are, are, are associated with red. Oh, of course. Of the red yes, pill yes, yes. and the blue pill, except but bugs who is very much the person who pulls Neo out of the matrix is blue and she has blue glasses and blue hair, which would make you think that she wants to stay in the matrix. But then you think, Oh, if we really were to follow this character through the point is that we don't We're that bugs, Bugs gets to a point in the movie where we are lectured about the fact that we should not say that she doesn't have agency. She has agency. Don't take away her agency. And then her, she, they take away her agency for the rest of the movie. It's just cut her out of the movie almost entirely. Um, but, uh, but, but she's well, I mean, to the point where at the end, she's like, becomes a, a merely a vessel to help um, in a very confounding way, a confusing way to transport Trinity out of the matrix. See, this That's is, what this is, by the end, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is what is, I thought was really interesting. And maybe this is an early thing to hit on first, but why not? We got to start somewhere. So the deal is that this is a little girl when she was a little girl, I guess we don't know how long it's been a couple of years. I guess she was a, a young adult because she had a job as a window washer, which is, that calls into question a whole bunch of stuff about the original matrix, right? Like Thomas Anderson is the computer programmer because it's just close enough to what he would want. Uh, that he believes it and his talents was she just sort of, you know, what's the social metaphor about being a window washer in the matrix? It's, it's kind of, it's kind of difficult, uh, but at any rate, she's a window washer. She sees Neo fly. She realizes the matrix is fake. And then she gets out of the matrix and it becomes real. But in doing so, she, she becomes, we don't, she doesn't really do this, but the story requires that she does this, becomes obsessed with the story of the original Matrix movie, which is reflected not necessarily in her emotional makeup, but in the fact that she enters into a computer program that is an eternal loop of the original Matrix movie. And and then even says later, this movie was so, this this game or whatever, this thing, the Matrix, the thing you did was so important to me and who I am, even though we don't really believe that's true based on how she's been through the movie and what she's talked about. Uh, It's hard to tell because we don't know what's normal for these people. So we don't know what things they're doing are strange, but the, the gist of it, right. Is that there is a story in this movie where bugs is both the person in reality because she's the one who pulls Neo out of the matrix, but she's also the person most deeply in the matrix because she's so obsessed with the story Mm -hmm. of Neo and Trinity that at the end, she becomes indistinguishable from Trinity in a Pacific rim, you know, kind of drift compatible fashion, (laughs) (laughs) which is again, a mechanic in the game that's only introduced in the final boss fight, which is just poor game design, which is really not what the movie is promising us. Uh, They say it's the best game design ever, but, um, but yes. So Matt, you are correct in that. I thought going into the, 
after the first half an hour or so of this movie, that this was going to be a movie about kind of passing the torch where there was kind of young matrix and old matrix and young matrix is meeting old matrix. And we're going to see this young woman come into her own and have to surpass or take the torch from or establish herself other than Neo as the center of this matrix franchise going forward. But instead what we get is a, a sort of zoomer matrix franchise that gets rolled out and then canceled because Keanu Reeves signs on to do another movie. And like, that's what happens in the movie. <laughs> right. Um, I guess is, is that, is that the real production history? It was interesting to me who they got no, and who they, who no, they didn't get no. in the, in Terminator salvation, right? Like that was the real production history that they were going to do a movie about Sam Worthington. Right. But then they got uh, Christian Bale. And to I, play John Connor. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that took over the story. That took over the story. And like rather than rewrite it, or I guess they were in the they were in the the predicament of having two kind of similar action star type figures, or like didn't, you know, not not sure exactly what to what to do with them. But this one was what what you're talking about, Pete, like would make sense, I guess, if they like uh you know, if Keanu Reeves signed on before the final draft of the script was due that couldn't ever be changed by <laughs> by anyone never mind that it was written and directed by the same person i think but the that like uh yeah that it's not um yeah that this is planned this is how it was supposed to be from the from the beginning which is just it's just sort of confounding i don't know the the you brought up terminator salvation when we were talking about it before that the film i kind of thought about when i was watching it was uh was the force awakens you know, and that, and the similar, the sort of similar, I mean, Ray was a window washer, you know, on, uh, on her planet. Um, and, uh, you know, saw, saw Luke Skywalker take a, take a leap, um, off a short island or something like that. That's, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, except that Ray actually gets to step. Well, I mean, we could all, we don't want to debate or talk, not debate, God, no, but we don't want to dig too deep into what happened in the star Wars movies. But, you know, Ray at the very least is ostensibly supposed to be a new Jedi protagonist. And that's what you think is happening with this new crew. And it just doesn't. I mean, is that, did you guys see it that way too? I, maybe they played bigger to some people than they did to me, but it, it was like, they made Terminator salvation on purpose from the beginning, but with the idea that they were just not going to finish the Sam Worthington plot. Huh. Yeah, yeah. It's, yes. it's accurate. It's 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 confounding. We keep coming back to that word. Yeah. Um, you know, I think Hugs, um, one of her major functions in this as well is being the vehicle for some very strange meta jokes, right? <laughs> like, just to be clear, right? No, no, no it's, I'll give some credit. It's clever that this character who is like a hacker in the Matrix uh, is named Bugs, as in computer bug issue, right? Uh-huh. You know, uh, uh, something you got to file in, in a Jira ticket, right? I thought it was um, just a Space Jam reference. It's also that is the okay. other thing, right? <laughs> she's, because you know, because she takes on the Trinity roles. You know, she's got the white rabbit tattoo. Follow the white rabbit, Bugs Bunny, eh? And Brothers. she also like this is this is not um, like my um, synthesized memory that the computer is put into me by the Matrix, right? Doesn't she say straight up, "What's up, Doc"? In this movie, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it was you know when when uh, when King George from Hamilton is uh, chasing her. <laughs> Um, I, I thought it was maybe a little on the nose when he started singing, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. 
That one is by accident, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I guess what I mean by that is that that okay. So one just to be clear, just to be clear for those who haven't seen this movie, that last part didn't actually happen. But there's, I, I swear, there's a there's Bugs Bunny character in this, and she says, "What's up, Doc?" That actually yes. happens. Yes. There's a, a running thing in this movie about how people aren't what they see of themselves in the mirror, and old. This is used in a. Uh, I guess what Captain Falcon and the Winter Soldier esque meta way to explain production problems that were happening with the movie, and also the the need and desire to pass the torch to new actors because the old ones aren't under contract anymore, or are too old or not hot enough, uh, or just not available due to COVID. And so there's because right there's because because Lawrence Fishburne just was never going to be in this movie. He's he's moved on in his life. He's he was in the John Wick one, but if you saw him in the John Wick one, you know he's not going to go do kung fu as Morpheus anymore. That's just not going to happen for Lawrence Fishburne. Fine, right? Um, but Hugo Weaving was supposed to be in this movie, and I think he just has a TV show and he couldn't do it. And they kept trying to make it happen, and then they couldn't do it. And it's like, well, what do you do if you have an actor that's really essential to a character? you want to bring back for a movie and he can't be there and it's like you got to get king george from hamilton to come in and just intercut his face with hugo weaving's face so that they play the same character um which again reinforces the idea that the movie is really interested in passing the torch to younger hotter people except that's almost entirely by accident also hugo weaving's really hot right i don't know i don't know who's attractive um but we've already established this i have neither city nor sex in, in with regards to this stuff anymore but <laughs> <laughs> my sense is that the, the broadway star guy from hamilton is a good-looking man but the hugo weaving has sort of an exotic specific elrond thing going on that that means that he's not not like Lawrence fishburne where it's like you know he kind of is is kind of not living that movie star life anymore um he's just he's just not bothering with it um and like i don't know if he's shaved or groomed his beard at all during the entire shooting of the John Wick. But he plays a homeless guy, so like a homeless kingpin, right, who lords over pigeons and uh, gun ninja masters. I don't know. Uh, the point being, right, that like, yes, the movie is a sort of trying at times to pass a torch, but it sort of isn't. And uh, so, Matt, to say, uh, to respond to you, no, that's not what it's about. <laughs> yeah, no, I th- I, right, exactly. That's well, good. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad we finally answered my first question. Question. Question down. two. Question two. <laughs> On the no, yeah, I mean, I it, it's a shame that that Hugo. I I hear he's a I hear he's a um, he's a good guy uh, as well, and you know, very affectionate. You could call him an an Elrond hugger, but the. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Is he really? Is Not, he? I didn't know that about Hugo Weaving. <laughs> that that he's a nice guy. That he like that he likes to give hugs. Um, I don't know. <laughs> oh, I thought I thought you were saying he's a Scientologist. No, no, no. I don't think I. I don't think that. I don't think so. Uh, I just was uh, was going for a cheap pun there. Um, oh, okay. I think there's something interesting about positioning. Well, I, I think there's something interesting about the way this movie has its cake and eats it too. In in. Um, the way that Pete is talking about, like you bring in the, the new cadre of younger, hotter people to kind of take over the franchise, uh, kind of what's happening to the Avengers right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if you've seen Hawkeye, but it's very similar. <laughs> 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 oh, I've seen hot guy. Um, <laughs> is Jeremy Renner attractive? I have no idea. I, I don't know. It's I hear not- he's a fine man. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Surely you must be joking. <laughs> I have, I uh I I have neither sex nor a city. Um but the the uh 
but the the way that it the way that it does this is interesting to me with respect to how it positions itself in relationship to the uh, first three movies to the original Matrix um, trilogy. Uh, the uh, by making it a video game diegetically in in the new Matrix, right? The original Matrix trilogy is a video game, and they are. It's something that has happened, right? There, there, the, the historical truth of the, I actually was wondering if the historical truth of the first three movies was going to be called into question inside the, you know, inside the, the reality, inside the story of resurrections. But no, it, it all happened. But, uh, in the new improved matrix where they, they, they resuscitate, they revive and keep the corpses of, of Trinity and Neo, um, they, uh, they, talk about the events of the first three films as though they are a a video game. And I think this does something kind of interesting. Uh it it takes away all the stakes, right? Because as as wonderful, as artful, as immersive, as as uh you know beautiful as video games can be, you can shut them off and turn them back on again, right? Like nothing not this isn't the the last Starfighter, right? Like nothing hinges on how you do in in a video game. And it had a weird way of like it it had a weird way of sucking a lot of the stakes out of the the first the first film. And I guess that like the the um the plot of this film is essentially an American tale, right? Where it's like somewhere out there, uh, beneath the, the, you know, electrically charged storm clouds, Trinity is still, you know, Trinity is still alive and you have to, you have to bring her down to, to IO, the human city where the streets are paved with cheese, um, engineered cheese. They don't have, uh, they don't have milk, uh, they don't have any of the, the ways to grow grass to feed it to cows or anything like that. That like the, what, what happens is that by taking out the, really taking everything, taking all of the meaning out of the, the first three films, which, you know, despite really declining in quality, I suppose, as they went on, still, you know, represented the arc of a kind of love story that involved sort of the, competing prerogatives of your uh, of wanting to be with the person you love and needing to sacrifice for some sort of greater good and like there was and and believing in your partner and like supporting them and there you know there there was like a real dynamic to it that that happened (laughs) over the course of those those three movies and you might not recall it might be a minute since since you've watched them but it doesn't end with you know keanu triumphant um it it ends with trinity and neo both dead and the, the the i mean spoiler alert for the matrix uh revolutions um it ends it ends with them both dead uh you know keanu's body being sort of borne away on a uh I don't know, on a, a, a robot flotilla, <laughs> a robot, a robot Viking barge going out to what you think is going to be some sort of funeral pyre. And, uh, and Trinity, you know, um, like, uh, d- 
impaled on rebar or something like that in the in the uh, wreckage of the ship that they flew to the to the machine city in. And what's achieved is a peace between uh, between man and machine. But th- I, near as I can tell, the machines get to keep operating the matrix, and the people, the humans, have to stop like freeing people from it. It's like more, it's more or less, it's, it's not exactly a piece so much as, uh, as it's a kind of non-aggression, non-aggression pact. And, and I guess like, I guess the point of this movie turns out to be, we want a satisfying, um, you know, I don't know. We want a satisfying sort of traditional Hollywood ending. We want like the man and the woman to kiss, uh, in a sunset, like uh, while the, the dramatic music plays and we want, uh, and, and I guess it's, I guess it's somehow progress because it's, it's Carrie Ann Moss who does the Superman stuff inside the, the, the matrix. But like, I don't know. There's, a, there's, there's something about it that like in the way that it, the way that it, it related to the, the previous, the previous material, which is always when you're doing like a reboot, when you're doing a, a, you know, um, when you're, when you're writing Don Quixote volume two, you know, you have to think about how you're going to relate to Don Quixote volume one, especially since a pirated version, a, a like, a uh, you know, a ripoff of Don Quixote volume one, um, was written by someone else and published, uh, round about the, round about the same time. And that ripoff makes a, uh, makes kind of a sensational appearance in, in Don Quixote volume two, arguably. Um, but that like, how are you going to deal with the material that's gone before? What, one of my favorite ways that this was done is the community season where they say, Oh yeah, that last season that didn't have Dan Harmon. Ah, there was a gas leak in the building. Nothing from that whole year counts, uh, for, for the story. But here, I don't know, re- reducing it to a video game, um, was a weirdly undermining move, uh, in my view. And as much as like, as much as there was this kind of meta commentary about franchise movie making and, and some, some weird inside jokes about Warner Brothers specifically, um, the, the, the move to the move to kind of minimize the impact of the uh, to minimize the impact of the first three movies by treating them in, diegetically treating them in that particular way uh, so it was a head scratcher for me I will I will say I mean to go back to what you said earlier about the movie trying to have his cake and eat it too it's like across every axis it's doing that. Right. It's undermining itself. And yet it's also leaning so so heavily on the events of the past movies that it's just like clip show style lifting the scenes and then playing them back to you to remind you why you care about these characters. Right. That to me um, uh, uh, was like tells you a lot about how how seriously they took uh, the events previously and like, yes, like there's all these kind of hand waving things that they try to say, like, you know, they're um not that they don't matter, but like that, um, to your point, they're, 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 they're soft pedaled. Um, but they still do. But I mean, you, you can see that for, for literally everything, right? I mean, like, you know, straight off the bat, the, like the bashing of Warner Brothers that they do, um, you know, it, it makes you think that you know, this is going to be some grand commentary on, uh, sequel and franchise filmmaking, uh, and kind of a broad criticism of it, but ultimately is just like another iteration of, the thing that they seemed like they were criticizing, right? Um, and like all the commentary around like technology and society, um, about 
how um, you know this this new matrix uh, is 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 better at manipulating people because it it puts this idea of fractured reality and 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 like uh, subjectivity front and center to distract people from it. Um, like you know that idea is there and and also kind of you know not fleshed out as well. So like at every corner you turn, right? Every point that it's trying to make, uh, yes, absolutely undermines itself and then turns around and undermines itself again. That at least is kind of like uh, <laughs> I'm taking it. Yeah, it's interesting because it's ostensibly arguing it is arguing against itself, but it's also presenting ironies within the story where that kind of conflict isn't really a problem. And I, again, I don't want to complain that it, it would be I would like it more or whatever if it were one way or the other. But I'm more interested in trying to get part past the part where it criticizes itself is the easy stuff. The part where the plots have these really deep, strange ironies in them is the tough stuff, I think. Because, okay. like, I don't care about any of Keanu Reeves' co-workers at the software company. As, like, Matt said, I don't care that it's a video game specifically. I don't care about the new agents and how they swarm or any of that stuff. Uh, none of that. It's all That's all just, you know, I mean, that's probably there for somebody else other than me. The stuff that interests me is the idea that the Matrix, the events of the movie The Matrix, the essential fact about them in this movie is that they actually happened to Keanu Reeves, to, to Neo and Trinity, and that Neo and Trinity don't remember that they happened. But not for everybody, or don't think they're real, right? But for everybody else, they not only happened, but are the most important thing that ever happened. So the people for whom they are not real thing, these are events that happen to somebody else, but every other person has internalized the story of Neo and Trinity, imprinted it onto their own identity in some way, in some strange way, and then reimagined the world around them as a reflection of the way that they've internalized this story and Just what to be it clear, means. You're, you're talking about like a character like the aforementioned Bugs, who uh, who has internalized the story. In that, like, oh yes, like these people did this thing, right? Or, or, or are you talking about everybody in the Matrix world who has played the video game? As Wait, so, so Neo all the people in Bugs' like, crew, story. the the yeah. person who's a neologist, right? Bugs, right. who you know her identity is built up off of it. All the characters who wear all the same clothes, even though it's sixty years later. Uh, the the game designer people, other than Neo, for whom this is the biggest thing. He's not even at the meeting to design the game. But they're all like, man, what does it mean? I know, I know, I know what it means. Oh, it's about capitalist oppression. Oh, it's really about a big explosions. It needs One to word, be about bullet, bullet time, time, right? Yeah. All that stuff is interesting in the sense that to them, they all have a way in which the matrix meant something to them. And I think when we step away from the diegesis, it's the original matrix movie meant a bunch of different things to a bunch of people who didn't make it. And we have Neo sitting down here being like, yeah, I probably put too much of myself in the Matrix game, <laughs> which is it sounds like it's the director saying, yeah, I probably put a little bit too much autobiographical material into the original Matrix movie. And now all these people think they own my life because they think that my, my life happened to them. And it didn't. And it's it's become so alienating that I don't even want to be part of my own life anymore. <laughs> and And they can have it. Right. My creativity, my imagination, my reaction to my circumstances, all this stuff that I thought was mine, it belongs to the world. And the whole world thinks it's their memory, which is itself a, a matrix, a, a false reality 
that uh, that has power and that controls behavior and shapes behavior. Uh, controls might be too strong, but then again, controls is always a tricky word because it it's so attractive to think that people are being controlled rather than influenced or cued to do things, right? Um, or prompted, right? Or, yes, or like yes. I, and I want to I want to go into that, but be, because I I feel like there is a there is a Joss Whedon esque uh, kind of turn near the, near the end of this movie about like how where it's where it's the Loki argument in in um, in the first Avengers movie where it's like ah you you people. People love to be controlled like sheep. Well, if you've ever tried to control a sheep, <laughs> it's not like you have to train dogs to do it. And even they are, you know, only managed to kind of like uh, influence the sheep, like push the sheep, kind of change the direction of the sheep rather than getting the sheep to, to obey. Absolutely. But like the, the, uh, it, but before, before we do that, I think, I think it's it, what you're saying is really interesting, Pete, and I think it can be concretized in in a particular way. Um, when when there's a film that uses a lot of clips from another film, uh, right? Like, which is something that happens from time to time. Um, there's a lot of flashbacks. There's a lot of like nostalgia for a you know for sometimes for like a dead character or something like that. There's a lot of uh, remembrance, right? And and even setting aside what the relationship to the memory is here, because it's a little fraught in the Matrix res- Resurrections, because it's you know he realizes be he's being you know lied to, and he's uh, uh, his memories are are reliable and not reliable at the same time, and and you know there's a lot of that. But like, but set, set aside that whole layer of as Pete says, the diegesis, right? When there's a movie that uses a lot of clips from another movie in a nostalgic or wistful way. Usually, usually there's a point kind of leading up to the climactic moment of the movie where that stops, you know, where the, the, the flashbacks, the, the cutaways to the clips of the other movie, the clip show stops. And that's, you know, that's when the hero, the, the character kind of takes command of their own life, like stops living in the past, you know, I don't know, and undergoes some sort of change that allows, that allows her or him to face the final confrontation that they, that they have to, to face in, uh, in whatever the story is. In The Matrix Resurrections, the clip show never stops. Right. And it's like, it's kind of, it's going the whole time. And even through the, like the climactic moments of this film where, you know, because this is the movie that we're watching, if for no other reason than this is the movie that we're watching, um, the climax of the film should be the most important thing that happens. Right. Even at those moments, there are cutaways to this. Uh, to this other, to this other movie, to the, to the past, which is like, it's nostalgic. It's, it's wistful, but it, it has the effect of robbing the past of its power and it has, it has the effect of, of robbing the present, uh, of its power. So I think one of the ironies, Pete, the, you know, that, that belongs in the family of ironies that, that you are highlighting is that by, you know, by sort of insisting on its importance, by insisting on the importance of certain things, the, the, I don't know the kind of the energy that that makes those things important that makes those things meaningful to you or to characters inside the story um is sapped and that's a 
kind of an interesting, I don't know, it's, it's sort of an interesting way to, to, it's an interesting way to go about it. It's an interesting way to apologize for, uh, you know, everything you foisted on the, for the, for the, for all the red pillars, I guess. It's an interesting way to uh, to say, "Hey, sorry for what we did to the culture for the last twenty years." <laughs> oh man! So is, is the movie apologizing for itself, though, or or, or, or the previous trilogy? Like in the final calculus, I, th- I think not. I think it's just like you know, especially to me, like the the final act, the, the one of the final action sequences where um, the the bots, the, the 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 sheeple are just raining down. <laughs> <laughs> upon um upon our main characters um like such just disposable cannon fodder I- i'm looking at this it's like okay no they're not really apologizing for this notion that um that, that you know everybody who's not in the uh select few who have the special knowledge are disposable like this is and also like it is like in fact like gone way um uh, over the top from anything that we saw previously um I- I- overall my impression was this like um, they're 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 at it again in that regard and everything else as well too. Yeah, there are big and large ways in which this movie overrules what happened in the previous movies, but I wouldn't say it apologizes for them. So okay, there's something built into the lore which I think helps, which is the notion of the anomaly. And Mark, you're the one who watched the who who you paid the closest attention to Colonel Sanders in your rewatch, right? Uh, I, mean, I, I didn't watch the, the all the second one, but I, I did um, um, watch that specific scene again. Yeah. Right. So the idea, as I recall, is that the architect of the original Matrix sees it as a chaos theory problem, wherein the unpredictability of all individual people in the aggregate can be controlled through these particular mechanisms. But it, there's an incompleteness to it, mm-hmm. wherein there could there's going to be. Every once in a while, there's going to be one sort of fractal breakout that's going to magnify and destroy the whole thing, right? Yeah. Which is both a mathematical issue and a uh, and a kind of physics kind of issue, and, and it he, comes up in that kind of math. And he presents it as just kind of just, well, this is the solution to the problem. It's like this right, aberration right, right. comes up, and then inevitably – um, he destroys it all, and they reboot the matrix, and they do it all over again. This is a right. very this is a very non software architect uh, solution to this problem. By the way, this is a tech support solution <laughs> to a software architecture problem because essentially what he's saying is what we have to do is unplug it <laughs> and then plug it back in. So. This presents yet another thing that The Matrix could be an allegory for. But, of course, as we've seen, this is a movie that is very comfortable with the idea that if you think The Matrix is something that happened to you, then it's going to be about what you're thinking about, even though it really only happened to Neo and Trinity, right, a.k.a. the Wachowskis, and not to the rest of us. But uh, but um, the proposition is that the Matrix periodic theory makes itself, and one of the ways that I think you could read this movie is that Gen X had their moment to blow up and remake The Matrix. So one of the things I thought was happening was, okay, Gen X blew up and remade The Matrix. People don't wear suits anymore. People go to nice coffee houses. Americans drink basically cafe au lait, the cortados, right? They drink espresso now, which as we talked about, oh, we never talked about the expanse and how frustrated I am that the coffee in the expanse isn't explicitly espresso because it really should be. But at any rate, um, the uh, 
that like the 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 matrix that we see is the world remade by the rebels of Gen X, the people of Keanu Reeves' generation. And now it has become the controlling superstructure of everybody's society. And there's this possibility now that the younger people are going to come along and they're going to have to blow up the matrix and then they're going to make it into something totally different. That's one of the ways in which it seems like this is moving. If you look at the matrix as operating by the rules from the previous movies and connect the previous movies, but then we're introduced to Neil Patrick Harris character who tells us the matrix has entirely new rules. Now, uh, what this makes me think about is that there's going to be a future matrix in which we go from the architect to the, uh, to the analyst to what the lead product designer or like the head engineer (laughs) is going to be like the thing about the matrix is it has to work. So you get a minimum viable matrix and you roll it out. It's just pong, right? The brains just play pong, but they love it. They give it a thumbs up. They all, they all hook up for that. And we, we patch the rest in later. Right. Um, but, uh, no, it's just, it's just uh, stick figures walking around. It looks like, it looks like kingdom of loathing. Uh, and it's very rudimentary, but it's entertaining. And then we, we add the texture mapping, in like 2.0, 3.0. No, I don't know. What would a uh, software engineer uh, matrix person use as a unifying principle for uh, controlling people's lives or I guess influencing people's lives through some mechanism that's similar to, if not strictly speaking, control? I don't know. I think you you just make the button really big. (laughs) <laughs> you know? I, I do. I was. I was laughing when you were saying that about how our metaphors involving sheep in different literatures can be traced to the proximity of the author to sheep. <laughs> so, like, so, like, in our in all of our stuff, where it's like, oh, all the people are sheeple, meaning they're easily controlled and docile. Yeah, no, and these like, are urban. These are urban writers. <laughs> yeah. These are people who have never seen a sheep in their lives. Yeah. And then you go back to say the Bible, which is mostly written by people who deal with sheep, right? Uh, and it's like you know, and, and the, the all the the main characteristic of sheep is that they die right that they get in trouble that they get themselves killed by doing stupid things and that they require uh as a shepherd yeah to near, near constant attention near constant attention and caretaking the sheep you cannot lapse your attention on the sheep for one freaking second or they're gonna fall into a ditch or get eaten by a lion sorry mark <laughs> go ahead no, I was just gonna say, yes, being a shepherd is a super important job. You almost it's almost as if a shepherd is a chosen one. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> you know, by hook or by crook, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, but the analyst here presents a different way of looking at the matrix, wherein we're no longer concerned with chaos theory and social control and the material relations between people and the exploitation of their labor per se. We are interested instead on the them in what they've internalized about their own situation much like with queer eye i guess or like sex in the city just like with the hawkeye reboot just like with wandavision this is really a wandavision actually did that strike any of you guys that this is basically wandavision um if trinity is the protagonist this is like (laughs) trinity like makes a world with a bunch of robots um and then uh and she doesn't actually know that it's her uh and she has a husband who's kind of a weirdo and a little bit awkward um and he sort of starts figuring out that something's wrong yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but it's i mean it's um, interesting it's it, it, i am i am taken by the idea of like there is sort of a failure of generational turnover and i it's what you say with bugs right like b- bugs should be the protagonist and she isn't uh she also should be I, she she should be qualitatively different, you know, than the older characters and not just like, not just, you know, the same as the older characters, but younger and more impetuous, you know, yeah. that like with different colored hair. Yeah. Well, yeah. sure. That, that like an Asian. 
<laughs> because this is, this is, um, you know, the, the, what the everyone in the matrix the original trilogy dressed like they were in madonna's sex book from the 90s do you remember madonna's yes. sex book from the 90s you know what like get open an incognito i invite everyone to open an incognito window and google madonna's sex book from the 90s it was so scandalous uh so scandalous at the time and yet today seems almost quaint seems like seems like leave it to beaver compared with the contents of my spam folder uh at this very moment. You know, the literature and, about having sex with Madonna is so different based on how much you know about having sex with Madonna. <laughs> well, that's why that's why I read the Madonna sex book in which, you know, it was yeah, Madonna the Old was Testament, another. as they call it. <laughs> I remember it was in uh it was in the independent bookstore that it's a store that I frequented as a teenager and you couldn't like get get at it. It was like, you know, behind glass and like it was this it was this uh wrapped up in in a brown wrapper or whatever and the, the madonna sex book where they all wore the you know they all wore the the uh late 80s and early 90s like underground club scene um new york club scene uh outfits that then later you know were mainstream enough to to make it into the to the matrix movie and there should they should look different you know the 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 new generation should should look different but it really i mean it feels like the the central emotional concern um uh in this movie is like coming to terms with the things that you did in your youth and how you probably in middle age should should leave your family and your job and take up with your college boyfriend or girlfriend again and that like you know because that was the real relationship that was the one that that was the one that really mattered um which you know is false <laughs> you shouldn't do that and uh you know i don't know i i uh I, I I I'm not saying that I want Trinity to go home with her her uh you know oddly controlling husband um you know uh who manufactures a crisis every time she seems to be getting a little independence oh the kids in the hospital but uh you know I but I I don't know I'm not sure that uh I'm not sure that running off I'm not sure that running off and and you know living the life of a of a, a motorcycle riding uh, of of a motorcycle mechanic is necessarily going to bring you all the fulfillment that you think it will well, but that's she, the she dark fly. irony no. oh sorry go ahead yeah, I, I just wanted while we're talking on Trinity, like, is there a plausible in movie explanation for why she can fly, and is there importance to that other than the fact that well, the the girl gets to do it now? I mean, sure. Is there a plausible in reason in movie reason for why Trinity can fly in the Matrix, not in yeah. real life? In the Matrix, um, I mean, she has abilities when we meet her. That allow her to defy the laws of physics, even up to the beginning of the first movie. It's the flying doesn't really seem that big of a deal when the first training that you do is to Hulk leap, you know, hundreds of you know of yards. I suppose. I mean, I guess it's a it's an upgrade, but uh, it's I, okay. I think I think so. The the I don't think the in movie reason is all of that robust for why trinity and neo are two sides of the same coin as it were but it's more of an out of movie reason the idea that neo is the one and trinity is trinity is the three and the idea that three and one are the same right the whole idea of the trinity is that it's the same as one 
Oh, so it's it's Common Core math. Yeah, I got exactly. it. Okay, they really have updated the Matrix for the new generation. Got it. So, the reason I don't get the Neo Trinity love story is because it's not eros. It's not erotic. It's homosocial. The point of Neo becoming fascinated with Trinity is that he's looking at himself because it, because he's he's an androgynous man who is trying to figure out what his gender identity is, and Trinity is his mirror. I always felt like Trinity felt more like Neo's mirror, somebody who was ahead of him, but who he had to catch up to. His image, like his who he believed himself to be, he needed to catch up with who he was, and in the same way that he needed to catch up with her. And I thought this was communicated from the idea that a Trinity is three and one, and you know, and he's the one. Um, and also the Oracle tells Neo, he's not the one in the beginning, in the first movie. So in the beginning of the franchise. So I think we're supposed to question, or not supposed to, but I question the idea that Neo is the one. And I, I think that Neo and Trinity are kind of a package deal, but I always disliked the idea that their relationship was primarily romantic. I thought like it was more drift compatibility, like Pacific Rim or more spiritual than sexual. Uh, and, uh, not that sexual relationships can't be spiritual or aren't spiritual per se, but more like, um, that they're, that they're, that they're from the same flesh, right? Um, uh, which I guess is talking about Adam and Eve, so that's bad, but, but you know what I mean in the sense yeah, yeah, of they're, yeah. it's almost like they're relatives. It's all, it's all, you know, it's like, it's weird because they're so close to each other. Um, and in that sense, it's almost like they're brother and sister. Uh, they're more like Luke and Leia than Han and Leia. Uh, the the idea that you find out that Trinity is a hidden Neo is just cribbed from Star Wars that Leia is a hidden Jedi. Um, sure. But except that they don't even present it that way as information that is useful for the bad guys at all, which is strange. Right. The idea that like the idea that Trinity is also the one along with Neo is something that Trinity sort of, I think, knows and Neo sort of figures out that he kind of needs her. And the machines do, I guess, figure it out. Um, because they tr- they can't let them be together, I suppose. But that's what I, that's guess that's what I mean is that it's more about uh, who Neo and Trinity are to each other symbolically. That is how I jive with it, I guess. I mean, Matt, Matt, what do you think? I just rambled for a bit about. No, all I that. think that, I I think that's I mean, what's the reason that that Trinity can can fly in the Matrix? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I isn't isn't Peter Pan taught us that the power to fly is love or something, and that Happy like thoughts, yeah. yeah, exactly, and that she's you know at that point she is the one who is self actualizing, uh, maybe a little more than a little more than he is, and that's uh you know also also she just rode a motorcycle and clearly riding a motorcycle. Uh, charges up your your fly, um, you know, stat so that you can uh, <laughs> so that you can fly. So you know, I don't know, Mark. It she makes, gets P speed, is what you're saying. It's like Mario three rules, <laughs> right? It makes makes yeah. uh, his cape speed. It makes it makes perfect sense to me. But yeah, I think I, I mean I think you're right, Pete. That this is like th- this is this is right, and this what you're saying is right. That like that Neo and Trinity were sort of intended as I mean their hairstyles are the same. They're they're you know roughly the same height and build. They're they're shot in a in sort of a mirroring kind of way uh in the um in the the original trilogy and then here with like with lumberjack keanu reeves like they they sort of double down on the secondary sex characteristics right with mm. uh um with him kind of growing the beard and his also his shaggy haircut makes him look less less like a mirror of her 
less like a mirror of her in in the matrix and it's interesting that though she her her sort of matrix identity is having a family right is like domesticity and motherhood and you know a kind of a, a kind of middle class normalcy whereas his is you know uh he's a he's a member of the intelligentsia or he's an artist or something like that like he's a designer he's a game a storyteller a game a game programmer you know and uh uh the the did it did it click for you that the game the game that he's working on the game that's supposed to be the um the new game the sequel to the matrix is called binary yeah what's up with that i didn't quite follow what was going on well, probably that, because of that, the sound design he, <laughs> he was they was working on a new game called binary though he was in the background running old simulations from the matrix which is how morpheus got oh right right you know, right right, right. But binary. Like, yeah that the new game is going to be the the title of the new game and this is you know presumably has been marketed to people because like if you have if you're at that level where you have like art developed and you know a logo you're probably like doing doing marketing for this game um, it's going to be called binary. Well, why is binary wrong? I mean, I think there's a, there's a superficial, uh, there's a superficial level, which is that we've sort of come to, come to have a more expansive, uh, understanding of gender identity and expression where that it's not an on and off switch. It's not a one or the other. There's a, there's a continuum. So that's wrong, but it's also, it, it's also, Binary is is wrong because in the Matrix, what's right is Trinity, you yeah. know, and that like three, three is correct. Three is the correct number. Um, as they say in Monty Python, three shall be the number to which thou counts, not one, not two. Uh, you know, three is the is the happiest number, is the friendliest number, is the, you know, I don't it's know. Magic most, number. Is the, is the number of, of self, yeah, self-actualization. And it's, it's, um, the, yeah, I, I do think their relationship in the first in the first trilogy really was sort of an allegory of self actualization, and not really an allegory of, or not really a story, not really a narrative of of romantic love. Uh, Eros, as Pete says, right? That like, um, and then sort of bring it, bringing it back as though it is a, um, yeah, I don't know. Bringing it back it really sort of gives gives the lie to a to a certain sort of symbolic level. Uh, symbolic level that they were talking, talking about. We're, we're nearing the end of our time, but I wanted to, Pete, you seemed like you're about to go into a direction about, uh, you said it's the dark irony of, and just the phrase, the dark irony of was so tantalizing that I wanted to, uh, I wanted to make sure we got the chance to <laughs> cash out what you were talking about well, before sure. we so bring I'll, it to I'll a jump close. off of something. I'll jump off of something you just said. The movie presents Trinity living this middle-class domestic life, and we expect this idea of her being a pleather-clad motorcycle diva as being a liberation, right, from the expectations that society place on her, and her looking to that as this transformation of herself. The irony is that she's already the motorcycle person, right? That like that's what's real and true for her. It's not a fantasy, right? That that these events of the Matrix actually happened to Trinity and they actually happened to Neo. <laughs> and when you think about what that means, these are very messed up, strange people that have gone through all of these things, which 
When you look at, uh, did you guys catch Rachel from Family Matters in this movie? Did not. Oh, man, she's great. She plays the butterfly scientist. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> I looked at it, and I'm like, what is up with that terrible age makeup on Jada, Jada Pinkett-Smith? I actually didn't know it was Jada Pinkett-Smith until I looked it up. I was like, that's Jada Pinkett-Smith? And then that's Rachel from Family Matters? That's crazy. Uh, but like their whole sort of memory of the war and they're, they're dressed up like Tyler Perry, right? like, like, it's just, it's awful. They're dressed up like, uh, like a Harkonnen, uh, from a David Lynch movie, not from the new one. Um, it, and it's, it's like, man, right. That, uh, that the people who have gone through the original events of the original movie are all very weird. Uh, like, like freaking Priyanka Chopra Jonas who shows up, right? And like, he's like, hey, by the way, remember this one little girl who was in this other movie briefly? I'm going to info dump now for 20 minutes about everything that's been going on. I had two other scenes where I didn't talk, right? And, uh, and now I'm totally, uh, I'm totally going to just go off. And, and and the irony is that, yeah, all of these other people who care so much about the Matrix, they don't associate with any of the people who were actually involved in the events of the matrix. Uh, Keanu Reeves is still old. <laughs> this is the first movie, not the first movie. Bill and Ted kind of felt that way, but Keanu Reeves is really not really looking ageless anymore huh. in this movie. He's supposed to be looking haggard and old and like out of touch. Right. Um, but that, uh, that it's interesting that when Neo and Trinity kind of come back into their own at the end of the movie, it's not really a progression because the thing that they were doing was was brainwashing. Right. Like and not in the way that the Matrix is where it is analogous to a sort of social conditioning, you know, like the um, you go to the coffee shop. If you're the kind of person who's go who's who's lonely and goes to the coffee shop and fantasizes about the same person you see all the time in the coffee shop, uh, your your the tr- your truth is not riding off into the sunset on a motorcycle with the person in the coffee shop. That is not what's true for you. I hate to break it to you, as my old Latin teacher would say. Hate to break it to you. Experience is a tough teacher. It gives the test first and the lesson afterwards. Strike while the iron is hot. Right? Um, Carpe diem, quam minimum, credula, prospero. (laughs) We who are about to die salute you. The midterm is Tuesday. Uh, (laughs) But just (laughs) – Prospero. this, This idea that like that Keanu Reeves, the the irony that Keanu Reeves' character is a shut-in computer programmer who lusts after a married woman he sees at the coffee shop, wherein that's not, that is so not the journey that his character is on. Because his character sacrificed himself in order to achieve the situation and circumstances that exist in this movie. Right. More or less, mm-hmm. right? This is pretty much how it was supposed to work. Now, granted, Neil Patrick Harris has been pushing the boundaries a little bit. He's been changing the rules. He obviously like resurrected them against their will. But but Neil won, more or less, right? Neil and Smith arranged this situation. So the idea that Neil has to rebel against it, he's defying his own wishes. He's he's going up against his own legacy because he's ignorant of it, right? Um, it's a very different problem than lusting after a random married woman that you see in a coffee shop, which again, both of these things are bad ideas, but one of them involves betraying a supercomputer and the other one involves hitting on people in coffee shops. And yeah, I don't have to tell you which one of those is a worse idea, <laughs> but, but you should probably guess. Um, that's not true. She doesn't work there. It's not the worst idea. 
Um, just let people do their jobs. Just leave them alone. But at any rate, um, but you get what I'm saying? Where like the uh, the the idea that um, that the way to control Neo and Trinity is to introduce into their lives the concept that they don't have everything they want because they previously did is so counter to understandings of the human condition, right? I mean, I guess it's sort of a Bruce Springsteen kind of idea, <laughs> like more more uh, glory days than the river. <laughs> I think the idea that, like, I guess the river, you kind of have it, like, me and Trinity, we were together, and then the computers resurrected our corpses and made us acquaintances who flirted with each other awkwardly, so I'll go down to the Cortado, right? It's like, I don't think that there are a ton of stories about people who do it all right and live their lives to the fullest and get everything they want out of it and then and then get backpedaled out of it against their will which is interesting and strange um right like I, can you think of others I, where where i mean other than i guess you know, young people who have this sort of rosy, the rosy cheeks of youth and everything is wonderful. You know, Jack and Diane down at the Tasty Freeze and whatnot. You know, whoa, the Matrix goes on long after the thrill of the Matrix is gone. Right? And that's sort of what this is, I guess, about. Um, yeah, but it's uh, not it's anti-cinematic, you know, to be yeah. like to be like it's it's more novelistic than cinematic to be like, hey, you know, there's a there's a lot of after after that happily ever after (laughs) a pill full of red a pill full of blue whatever pills ride for you i'll meet you anytime you want i mean i I know we don't want to relitigate all of the the star wars uh, sequels again but is that not something that happens to the 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 main characters uh, where they have everything they want they they, they did yeah they they defeat they defeated the empire they beat all the bads um they achieve self-actualization and um Particularly by the end of the Last Jedi, um, they have like all, a lot of that, t- almost all of that taken away from them. I'd argue by the end of the Rise of Skywalker as well. Mm-hmm. I could see that. I don't think I, it's it's interesting. The drama of it is still confounding. Like, like that example doesn't make me feel less confounded by that situation. It makes me feel more confounded by it because I don't think I have a handle on what was going on. I mean, Han Solo, of course, doesn't make it. Spoilers, spoilers. Han Solo is murdered in the on, animation on a Peloton. Yes, he's killed on a Peloton <laughs> by Mister Big. Who gets him in the back of the head with uh, this wonderful toner that you should use daily? <laughs> um, we're just going to mix all of the different shows other than The Matrix together, just like Space Jam. Um, I guess that happens in Space Jam. Bugs Bunny gets everything he wants, <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then time moves on. But it's but does does The Matrix Resurrections feel like a movie about aging? I guess is part of the question because that's when that's that's the any given Sunday argument, right? Like when you get old in life, things get taken from you, but nobody tells you that until you start losing stuff, right? Uh, and you find out life's this game of inches, you know, one step too slow, too fast, and you blow up in a giant b- ball of attack helicopter fire, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hoo-ah! No, I, I I think yeah, I mean I think that I think that it is ultimately, and I think that the the concern with aging or the concern with the concerns of middle age kind of confound um the uh some of the more you know techno philosophical mumbo jumbo that go yeah. without which it wouldn't be um wouldn't be a matrix movie i think we talk about it more on this podcast because 
it's more interesting. And that's kind of why, because it's a much more, it's a much more, uh, it's a much more human story. I think we might have to leave it, uh, leave the conversation there. Um, because, uh, our, our time, our matrix loop is being reset and we're going to go run on the, uh, we're going to go run on the treadmill again. Uh, with Keanu Reeves, it's really, I mean, I mean, his devotion to good cardio is really, uh, is really the most admirable thing about his character in, <laughs> in the film, you know, but, uh, he could, he should do maybe like a high intensity interval kind of, yeah. kind of workout. This, instead this, of mo- like, this movie has the inverse relationship with treadmills that the Hobbit movie has with barrels. <laughs> it's like the least fun thing in the world. Is to run on a treadmill. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, thanks very much for listening. Thanks to Pete and Mark for uh, watching the Matrix Revolution Resurrection re- re- Obliviation re- Reincarnation Renumeration <laughs> Remuneration. Welcome to Raccoon City. Oh, Carpe Diem Qua Minimum Credula Postero, not the as in posterity, not Prospero, as in the uh, the uh, wizard in Shakespeare's The Tempest. Yes. My God, my Latin teacher would would definitely want to lock me in a matrix until I, uh, until I learned all, uh, until I learned to read all the directions before starting the test. Hey, we'll be back next week with more overthinking it podcast. Till then visit us on the web at overthinking it.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Real quick guys, fade or free will. Okay. It makes sense. Free Willy. Big Willy style? <laughs> there it is. Will Ennium. <laughs> I, I know you identify as a Will Ennial. I, I identify as a Will Ennial, and I'm getting jiggy with it on a daily basis. <laughs>